0: First and foremost is for us to avoid a 2027 scenario, right? Many people are, are saying the PLA will have a capability and a willingness to invade Taiwan in 2027. So for for, our, for next five years, we would have to avoid that happening.
1: Welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Tuesday, September 6, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. My guest today for our 36th episode is Eric Huang, who is speaking to us from Washington. Eric, welcome to The Hale Report. Hello, Eric. Very nice to have you here today. Before we begin our conversation, let me tell our listeners a bit about our guest and the party he represents. Eric Chua Huang was born in Taiwan and is the representative of the KMT party in the United States. The KMT, or Kuomintang led the fight against the communists in China until 1949, when they fled with their leader, Chiang Kai-shek, to Taiwan, where the party is now headquartered. However, the current president of Taiwan is Tsai Ing-wen, and she represents the Pan Green DPP. So Mr. Huang is a member of the Pan Blue Opposition. He served as its international spokesperson for the KMT before moving to Washington. He's a graduate of University of Virginia and has a master's degree in international relations from Johns Hopkins University. So Eric, I think you are perfectly placed to help us navigate the very tricky waters of the Taiwan Strait in order to understand the intricacies of Taiwan's position on global politics and its impact in the world. But first, as you probably know, um, I've always asked my guests how they became interested in the field that became their life's work, which you obviously did at a very early age. So do you mind sharing your journey with us?
0: Absolutely. Um, Well, first of all, thank you again. This is a great honor for me to be here. Um, I don't know if I can, uh, how much insight or how much life and shit on the big topic you talk, that you just mentioned. But I'm happy to share with, you, with anybody uh, why I got into the work that I did. Um, so when I was um, a child, I always had a, a, a great interest for public service. I always wanted to uh, help others. I always want to help uh, people in need. And I always thought that uh, you know by helping others, uh, it makes my life better. When I was a college student, um, my major was international relations, and I read about um, Taiwan's international status, and I, I just felt a, a great sense of commitment, uh, hoping I can improve Taiwan's uh, diplomacy efforts and help Taiwan to be better recognized uh, throughout the world. So the, the you know I the, the internal debate within me was not whether to get into public service is whether, um, how to enter public service in Taiwan. Um, I had uh, the great fortune, um, having many great mentors in my life uh, to guide me where I am today. So, um, you know, I, I think it's important for me every day. And I, I remind myself every day we're in line, this in this line of work to do public good, but not to seek, Power and authority. Um, only through that we try to achieve greater good. It's not an, an a personal ambition, or um, there's no place for that. So, this uh, is, this, you know, there are obviously con- you know, internal struggles, and I, I talk to myself every day. But um, I think so far, um, I've been very fortunate and I, I have uh, managed this pretty well.
1: Well, you know, today, uh, there's no doubt that Taiwan is at the center of the Cold War in Asia. So Taiwan is going to have, Eric, elections on November 26th. Can you give us um, a preview of what's happening, what the issues are, what are local politics, and what was the effect of the COVID pandemic?
0: Right. The, the, The COVID pandemic like the rest of the world, has really rattled people's lives in Taiwan. Um, first and foremost, uh, people suffer economic economically and obviously change people's lifestyle somewhat. However, I think uh, this upcoming local election uh, is mostly about the quality and image of individual candidates. Um, this is um, not an election... That might um, reflect upon, say, national security or other stuff. I think this is um, a grassroots grassroots election that uh, people are looking for that personal connection between candidates and voters. Nevertheless, I think um, pandemic um, will have a toll in this election in the sense that. Um, maybe some voters would want to cast their ballot to a candidate who has a better vision to lead their individual cities, uh, say, past and beyond the pandemic, which we are towards the tail end of this COVID-19. However... Um, You know, because Beijing and the the people, the uh, the the Chinese Communist Party will be having their 20th Party Congress uh, very soon. So we don't know whether um, they will make any type of moves that will uh, change voters' behavior. Um, But usually, I think uh, KMT is the Kuomintang, the party that I represent, has a very strong holding in local elections. Uh, that is because our candidates are usually um, uh, rise through uh, file and ranks, and they have that very deep connection, local connection. So this is, um, so I would say, you know, that, that even though KMT are expecting, if you may call it a win in the local election, um, there are 21 cities. Um, who we currently govern um, over half of them so um, six is dpp one is independent so we currently govern 14 and we think we will be able to maintain that number if not gain a few more cities um, but i think this is an election mostly about uh, individual candidates rather than um, a party uh, altogether.
1: and the mayor of taipei is a member of the kmt party as well. But what you're saying is it's really a beauty contest, a personality contest, more than it is about issues.
0: The current mayor of Taipei is an independent. Independent. Uh, he is the chairman of Taiwan People's Party. Uh, our, our party's candidate is a legislator from Taipei, obviously. His name is Wei Zhang. Uh, he comes from the heritage of Chiang uh, Kai-shik's family, who obviously rule uh, China and Taiwan, um, you know, party obviously still have somewhat of influence. Um, I don't want to make it sound like party doesn't matter. Party affiliation doesn't matter. But I think um, as we have seen in Taiwan's polling and, you know, the trend is um, party of voters who affiliate with parties are dropping, and independent voters are rising. And they usually identify with issues, and they uh, look for that connection uh, with candidates. So I think um, you know this. It is, it is you're right. A beauty contest, if we may call it that, between candidates.
1: So back in Washington, you got to know that neighborhood while you were. In school, but what can you tell us about the mood in Washington now, especially um, after the Pelosi visit, which seems to have somehow changed the status quo?
0: Um, I I think, well, first first and foremost, I think I would like to thank people here in Washington for their great interest in Taiwan and their willingness to help Taiwan. Um, I think the Pelosi visit did uh, just that. The Pelosi visit um, you know, when I was a student at UVA, we took some uh, journalists, journalism classes. It, you know, she shit lies, you know, for some people, the darkness of Taiwan. And I think, you know, that trip got a lot of people pay attention to Taiwan, um, not just policymakers in Washington. And the American people that I know are um, just great people. They will not only help democratic countries, but they, they have this um, propensity to help people that they like. I think Taiwan fits that description. We are democratic and we are good people. So I think Americans um, really want to help Taiwan. And I am very thankful. And I think here in Washington, too, you know, one evidence is that um, they are currently talking about Taiwan Policy Act. In the Congress, which right?
1: My next question for you, yes, definitely, It's yeah.
0: quite significant. So, mm-hmm. um, I think this is a you know a bipartisan agreement consensus that you know Taiwan is important. Taiwan uh, is not only serves the American interests in terms of democracy or semiconductor industry, but also um, is. For the stability of the region so i think um the the, the temperature is very high and very hot and taiwan has no intention of changing status quo at least under the kmt Um, i can't speak for the dpp but um we are we just we we just try to do our things and you know um, stay out of trouble and i think american folks are um, are supporting us in that sense
1: Looking at the Taiwan Affairs Act, a lot of it is about military support, but there are some issues that I think the Chinese will feel are provocative. For example, giving full embassy status to the current missions in both Taipei and D.C. What do you feel about that? Do you think that the eventual bill will be less provocative?
0: Absolutely. You know, because... Different members of the Congress would have to look at it and be, you know, agreeable. And for me, what's the most important, if we can call it the meat of this this entire act, which has to be tacked onto a a bigger bill. Uh, We don't know which one it will be, maybe NDAA or maybe something else, is the military aspect that you just mentioned. Uh, is the military of cooperation, is the arms sales. That is what we're looking at. The more, um, if we may call it symbolic, the one you mentioned, giving an embassy status, I think we already enjoy embassy status. I think um, changing a name to our embassy from Tekro to Taiwan, um, Taiwan embassy um, might not be... Uh, included in the final text i think if, if i understood correctly i think there are uh, ongoing discussion about this and we don't have to wait too long in two weeks time we will be able to see the final text but the sense i got um, members of the congress or policy makers they want to get you know what is what actually matters—the the, you know, the substantial stuff in the bill, in, in the bill, rather than some, some symbolic things. But um, U.S. Congress is very supportive. Uh, but even if they pass those so-called more uh, provocative sections, we don't know how the administration will react. I see. So the, this, we still, you know, this is still something that we have to observe to see how everything panned out.
1: Okay. So um, one thing that I found interesting was recently the vice chairman, I guess, of the KMT, I think Andrew Shao, made a visit to China, visiting China right after Pelosi's visit. What did you, it it seemed to raise some eyebrows even with the KMT itself. Uh, What do you feel about the reception of the DPP and the KMT in China amongst bureaucrats there? And politicians,
0: you know, as a political student, um, a political, a student of political scientists, and somebody who actually works in politics, there is also always an internal struggle, talk of war, between doing what you believe is right and doing what um, is the most popular if that makes sense. Of course. Um, And we have experience in the world of populism in recent years. Um, That can be, even though China is not a democracy, but you you can argue the same. The current uh, hyper-nationalism is part of that global trend, right? So I think our vice chairman, Shah's visit, it's a very classic case of this, right? I think every, well, I don't want to say everybody, but I think most people are, will see the merit of, of open line communication. Um, and these the merits are even heavier when the tensions are higher, which means even, you know, even if this person or this nation can be, confrontational, open-line communication is, by theory, still a good thing. By theory that can help each other understand one another more and try to avoid the worst-case scenario.
1: That was the key message of my last podcast guest, Carla Hills, who is the former head of the USTR, of course, and she just said that the more communications that we can have with China, especially at high levels, the better. And we need to urgently do more than we are right now because COVID also added to that, right? Where we didn't have in-person meetings.
0: Right. And I would just want to add that, call me old school, in-person meetings are always better (laughs) than cyber meetings. Um, You know, just that, The the personal eye contact, the body language, you just can't replace that. So um, our vice chairman's visit to China is to keep that line of communication open. We have about a million Taiwanese lives in mainland China year-round. And KMT, we have the burden and responsibility to take care of their needs while try to convey to Beijing, a the Taiwanese people uh, do not appreciate all of their military drills or uh, their fighter jets circling Taiwan, and b um, Taiwan is looking to maintain stability, peace, and stability in the region. Right. So I think um, that that was pretty clear and it's my personal view. I think, uh, Andrew did a great job, uh, over there. However, um, I think larry what you mentioned, um, some criticism is, I don't know if this is a right word, excuse my bad English, um, is prisoner of the moment is when people are looking at, you know, um, just public reactions, <laughs> Um, they are, they are, there are people which I, I, I see the merit of the argument. They think the timing could have been delayed, right? They think, um, Andrew could have waited, um, some time after Pelosi's visit. But I think even if you have done that, you know, critics, you know, critics will always critique and, but at the end of the day, you just have to ask yourself, Um, whether what you're doing is right, whether Taiwan has benefited from this. And in my book, I think I I put a check to both counts. To
1: both. And, you know, what I read was that he had long planned this visit and that the purpose was also to meet with Taiwanese business leaders in China to look after their interests.
0: Correct. I think that the trip was originally planned uh, in mid-June and mid-June, obviously, nobody knew uh, Speaker Pelosi was going to travel to Taiwan. So it was a prearranged visit. That's
1: right. So, you know, with the, all that being said, what is your reaction to the famous, now famous white paper on Taiwan that China issued this summer as well? I don't know what the reaction was in Taiwan. I know what it was in Washington, but can you share with us? what people in Taiwan felt about that, especially after Hong Kong?
0: Um, the overall reaction is not good. Um, I think some of their languages, even though, well, first, I would like to share my thoughts on this. I think even though um, the rhetorics are somewhat consistent, one thing that I was looking for is whether peaceful reunification was still, still in the text. Uh, which it is, they did not uh, take out the word, the adjective peaceful. So, in my opinion, I think there are some continuity. However, um, when you're looking at policy guideline, um, the the text continuity is one thing, but the attitude of the leaders is another. And I think this is what people um, believe. Is somewhat changed. People think that under Xi Jinping leadership in China, their attitude is much tougher than before. So the same guidelines say for current leader Xi Jinping versus the previous leader Hu Jintao, uh, because of the attitude uh, in terms of actions, might be a little different. Um, so I, I'm, I am just you know, stating what i what I observe, I think there are continuities. Um, and I'm somewhat glad the word peaceful is still in there. However, because of the current the added the attitude, the very aggressive attitude of uh, Xi Jinping's leadership, I think that uh, it is very poorly receiving Taiwan. I think people think this is the, the ultimatum. And others think this is Beijing's effort to take Taiwan back and put a timeline on this issue.
1: Especially when coupled with more uh, aggressive military exercises.
0: You, you're right. And, and these military exercises, um, observers are looking whether they will become a new normal. And if that is the case, I think it's very worrisome. Um Things can go very wrong very quickly uh, in this kind of action and behavior.
1: I understand, speaking of communications, that there is no direct communications like a, some kind of uh, crisis management system set up between China and Taiwan so that if an accident occurred, they would have to go through a third party to discuss that. Is that, is that correct? Because that strikes me as a very dangerous situation.
0: So there used to be one. Um, our vice chairman Andrew Shaw often jokes about there used to be a hotline. Hotline, right. When he was the minister of mainland affairs, and he said that he only used it three times first time to say hello, last time to say goodbye, and he wouldn't say what the other time. <laughs> um, but it is our understanding that under the current DPP administration, uh, there isn't such. Uh, communication or a hotline exists. Whether or not they have under table channels, I don't know. I don't have any knowledge. Um, but I absolutely agree with you. I think this is very dangerous. Um, especially the Chinese are doing, taking, you know, exercising all these military actions, and I think um, it, the both sides need somewhat a need a, a verification channel. Uh, for that scenario.
1: If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and The Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. Well, given this political landscape that we're talking about now, um, moving to the economic relationship between Taiwan, the US, and China, and in view of this new um, urge to decouple, how do you see that developing and the the ties between Taiwan and China are very deep as you mentioned a million Taiwanese living in China and also uh, companies operating there and then Taiwan and the United States and um, semiconductors how do you look at that um, those relationships?
0: Um, first of all we know Taiwan is a very important semiconductor producer in the world. Um, However, we can expect a higher demand for such product in the future. Therefore, I think countries are now looking to produce regionally uh, versus internationally. Um, so Taiwan will have to face this change. However, I think the demand will be so high, the supply will, um, increase exponentially. So it's not a given that because people are now, uh, manufacturing, uh, semiconductor chips locally, and TSMC will lose its importance. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, TSMC will have to expand its manufacture capability. Um, I, I think in, in, if we're looking about U.S. and China in terms of economic relations, I think things might cool down a little bit. However, um, I think Taiwan sitting in the middle, um, we will have to make a choice for if this economic confrontation or competition between the U.S. and China continues. And I think um, a lot of Taiwanese businessmen had decided uh, in the beginning of COVID to move back to Taiwan. And our government is encouraging uh, TSMC and the ecosystem companies to invest in the U.S. So Taiwan is already adjusting to this. And whether we can thrive through this um, is a different question,
1: right? And um, there will be a lot of readjustments for sure um, as as part of this. And also to bring in, we've talked about Taiwan, the U.S., and China. A new factor is Japan, and of course, you know, Japan occupied uh, Taiwan from eighteen ninety five, and I think something like eighty five percent of people in Taiwan today are descended from people who lived in, in Japanese-occupied Taiwan. So there's a strong element of that. But um, the late Shinzo Abe was a proponent of uh, defending Taiwan. It, this is a uh, seems to me a big change. And what about the relationship now between Taiwan and Japan? To me, it seems to have deepened.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, the J- Japanese, J- Japan, the, the relationship between Japan and Taiwan has grew stronger and stronger. Um, there is a long standing history, um, you know, not just recently. I think um, during the Chiang Kai shek era, uh, you know, prime ministers visited Taiwan. Um, so we're looking at this relationship. To uh, maintain the stability and the peace and the stability in the region, right? So for Taiwan, it's not to pick sides or uh, look for. We're just looking to increase and bolster this relationship, like everywhere else with anybody else. However, um, the element you describe is, is is very real. Uh, a lot of Taiwanese people enjoy. Japanese culture or visiting Japan um, for travel and I think this will continue in the future um, so i'm, I'm pers- I personally think this is a great trend um, if you uh, Taiwan and Japan can come up with different agreements and take our diplomacy to the next level
1: that that would be wonderful. You know, and I think Taiwan will maintain its um, its dominance in semiconductors as well for, Japan is a huge market for Taiwan, because as I understand it, it's not simply getting equipment to make semi- semiconductors that labor and, and the engineering process, the actual, there's a, a physical aspect to it. And the operators of those semiconductor machines Um, create almost um, uh, an interaction, a relationship with the machine that they use. So it's not just a matter of this manufacturing that can be lifted up and moved elsewhere, either in the region or overseas, but that there's um, the aspect that cannot be readily replicated, which seems to be present in Taiwan, which is the talent. And China, as I understand, has been trying to get some of the engineers. But I think that it's that um, the actual manufacturing process has much more of a human element than most people realize.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think um, the human the human element, um, because com- semiconductor industry, the success is based on precision, right? So everything Correct. you need mm-hmm. that perfection um to produce the chips of a high quality so um the human element is there and also what i um what i mentioned before the the ecosystem right um uh, tsmc just one part of um, the manufacturing the other company the infrastructure right the uh, the, the logistics uh, the shipping and everything else so um i think taiwan do have an edge uh, however i think like any other uh, intellect, intellectual properties. I think this is shared among the world. So, when people, when different countries start to manufacture locally, I think this is why you're seeing TSMC setting up shops, uh, first in the United States, now they have to go to the EU. Um, I think this will help TSMC expand as well um, to uh, a bigger, larger global um, operation. Uh, I think through that, Taiwan's independence, uh, Taiwan's importance will be elevated.
1: And I understand, by the way, that um, that uh, Taiwan is opening its borders beginning on September 12th to foreigners as well. Can you tell us about that?
0: Um, this is just a great development. So before this, um, as a foreigner, you need an invitation um, to conduct some sort of business or travel to Taiwan. So uh, the world is reopening up. Um, so we are now getting ready for a post-COVID world, and Taiwan is doing the same. And hopefully, this will help Taiwan's economy because I know a lot of folks has been suffering uh, because of the pandemic. So if the world now, the world now, Taiwan is ready to for the, the rest of the world to uh, to enter. Um, I think people can travel to Taiwan and see. Um, what you know, U.S. officials seeing in Taiwan, which is a lovely country, uh, friendly people that just want to carry out some business and not to be bothered.
1: Sure, I have a daughter who lives in Taiwan. I think you know her, Erin Hale. Um, she's a journalist there, so I'm hoping to get to visit her.
0: It's a fantastic place.
1: It's a fantastic place, but you know, um, I think you still have to have some kind of quarantine.
0: Um, a little bird told me. Um, that the quarantine will be lifted in in mid-October.
1: I see. Thank you for this information. Very important for me as a mom, right? Looking at um, what's going on, you mentioned the EU, and looking at what's going on in Ukraine, many people have taken um, a lesson from that, saying that this same predicament could happen uh, with Taiwan, do you believe that that's true, that now China will be emboldened by what happened with Russia and Ukraine? Or do you think that's just a false analogy?
0: It's, I, I usually say this, say this, it's very hard to predict what China would do because of lack of transparency. And whenever we are making predictions, we usually use rational thinking. And sometimes dictators... Um, don't rely on rational thinking. However, um, is, say if you are um, assessing the the, the, the international uh, current situation, I think the Ukraine situation should not should not embolden chi- China, and quite quite on the contrary, I think they should be worried and concerned about. Taking on behaviors that might offend the rest of the world, I think you know military uh, confrontation is one thing. I think economic uh, uh, boycotts is another thing. I think um, it is now um, more and more clear. Even though uh, for Taiwan, uh, a lot of the country, especially the U.S., has this strategic ambiguity, which is a military ambiguity. But I think the economic sense has become more and more clear that um, in any uh, type of scenario, uh, Ukraine scenario, which facing invasion, I think a severe uh, boycott or sanction will be placed towards China. And I think China should be worried looking at this Ukraine situation and say, first of all, Um, If they carry out some type of uh, invasion scenario, uh, this war will be dragged on. And second, I think they should be worried that how fast the rest of the world came together to support Ukraine, I suspect they would do the same for Taiwan. Mm.
1: One thing that surprised me was conscription in Taiwan. I would think that Taiwan would have a draft that would be maybe at least two years for every able-bodied man on the island. But I understand it's just four months, but now people are thinking of lengthening that.
0: So yes, um, Taiwan, by our constitution, we have a conscription. Um, So my father's generation, they did serve two to three years. Uh, every man, uh, able man. Um, so the current situation is because um, President Ma and Joe tried to develop a all-voluntary force in Taiwan. So they uh, shortened the serving time to four months. Uh, I believe now they are putting it back to one year. Um, that's one thing. And second is, I think, they are revisiting our reserve policy. So, they're going to make um, our reserve forces stronger and more um, mobile. So, the, the reform uh, happening in Taiwan is to help the country better defend itself, uh, one thing. And second, is always to show determination to the rest of the world.
1: I honestly think we should have uh, one or two years of uh, mandatory service in this country. And not just for the men, but for the women too, that that would be a wonderful way of um, giving them an experience beyond the usual thing in their usual circle and uh, getting them to to meet people from other walks of life and do something um, that has a social, social benefit as well. I think it would be a wonderful thing to create unity in the United States too.
0: Is is right? So you're looking from a societal perspective, right? From individual perspective. I think um, you know, <laughs> serving the military is, is is a great experience to discipline yourself, to learn how to follow orders. Um, I think um, many could really benefit from that.
1: I know quite a few who could benefit from from that for sure. So um, at the same time. Um, I, I i and please also correct me with this fact i believe taiwan's birth rate is the lowest in the world so I, given this basically happy growing society what do you see as the reason for that and are there plans to reverse that
0: um i'm really not an expert on this but i'm happy to share my uh, my opinion um you know i am i'm, I'm ex- my my wife and i and i were expecting we're happy to
1: <laughs> you're doing your part right
0: <laughs> i'm doing my part um we we're planning to have more than one kid um i think a lot of taiwanese uh, people um, my age really are not getting married or not having kids for a number of reasons uh, one is obvious economic you know not not to not to complain, but you know, getting married, wedding, and raise a kid uh, is really, really costly. And especially as a parent, uh, we would like to afford the opportunity our parents afford us to our next generation. So I think economics, obviously, one of them. And I think the second I think is just is a cultural thing. I think um, raising a kid is just not a very popular culture in Taiwan right now. Hmm. Um, Can that be changed? Yes. And I think third is political. I think even though people, you look at Taiwanese people, they are not reacting uh, much to the Chinese military drill. But I think uh, uncertainty is still there. Right, Um, bringing, Bringing a life to the world is a lifelong responsibility. And I think you know, as so a parent, you would think about, oh, you know, what kind of world will my child face? So I think a combination of these things, among others, um, it, you know, come, be, give us the result of Taiwan's low birth rate. Uh, would that change? Um, I, I don't think they will change um, in the next 10, 20 years. I think the younger generation will be less inclined to have babies. Um, But it is a national security problem for Taiwan. Um, But I think if, A, the the cross-strait tensions drops down, and B, if Taiwan can enjoy uh, a a better economic growth where there will be more and more upper middle class and double income households in Taiwan, I think um, the birth rate problem uh, will be not as severe as Today.
1: What about immigration as a solution? I I don't know how difficult it would be for for example a Chinese citizen to to immigrate to to Taiwan. Is that a easy or hard process, or could that help this
0: issue? Um, the Chinese immigrants faces the most strict policy versus immigrants from other places, but nevertheless, uh, Taiwan till today to not recognize dual citizenships i see so if you were taiwanese and you became an american citizen which is okay but say if you're an american and want to become taiwanese you have to give up your country of origins citizenship i but see that's one reason why um, immigration um, we don't see a large number of immigrants in taiwan even though they can get their permanent residence uh, arc um Second is, um, I don't know how ready Taiwan society is facing immigration. Um, immigration in different parts of the world, uh, has bring much benefit. So I think Taiwan has to look at our society and say, um, do we have enough tolerance for immigrants? But I think given the current situation, um, Taiwan would need immigrants. Um, I just don't know whether uh, Taiwan have enough attraction in terms of immigration policies to attract immigrants to come to Taiwan.
1: I I just think that based on the current trends, this will be an issue that has to be faced one way or the other, right? Otherwise, you'll just have a slow, uh, slow motion diminution of Taiwan. You know, uh, if, if our listeners want to learn more about all the things that you've been sharing, Eric, about Taiwan, it's so hard these days to know, especially when it's a place where there's a lot of contrary opinions. Where do people go to find out more information about Taiwan? Where, what do
0: you read? I, I read... <laughs> I, read, I read from six, seven different sources, new, news sources every day. Um, I think if you want to read about Taiwan, um, just read as much as you can. Um, there's Taiwan News, there's Taipei Times. Um, I think the Western media covers Taiwan from time to time. It is obviously the best if you can read from original Chinese sources. Uh, but, um, you know, I think. Uh, foreign relations magazines like Foreign Policy, The Diplomat, National Interest, they all did a great job covering Taiwan. And if you want to read on current events, uh, there are some uh, translated news sources as well. And I would encourage everyone to read from more than one news source. And just be considerate that uh, misinformation is out there. Um, and once you have the mindset, I think um, people can come to their own very educated conclusion.
1: Mm. I was uh, sad to see that Apple Daily is basically closing down in Taiwan. Um, for our listeners, Apple Daily was a Hong Kong publication. And I think the two publishers are now in prison or about to go and serve lifetime sentences, but they moved their operations to Taiwan. Why weren't they able to continue operations there. Do you know anything about that? Just curious.
0: Um, I don't have any inside stories, um, but I, I will share with you, Larrick, Uh Apple Daily was the first uh, Taiwan newspaper that initiated a pay program for their online re- readership. Um, that failed. So, I see. And, and they're not the only one. The other newspaper... That tried this, have all failed miserably. So maybe the Taiwanese people they don't have a habit of paying to read newspaper online yet, and I will say that's a major reason why. On top of newspaper is already a dying industry. If I if I may call it that, so it's just a combination of different things. And you know, Apple Daily. um, if, for those of you who aren't familiar, is uh, a, a a newspaper that, though, delivers political news, but they are very entertaining. Uh, people will read uh, Apple Daily. So I think uh, Apple Daily was also the first uh, Taiwanese newspaper that um, have very large photos and very small captions. Right. So it's, it's, it's a revolutionary newspaper in Taiwan that changed the way people think about newspaper. Uh, it's just very unfortunate. Um, newspaper um, is a sunset industry and they couldn't um, really get readers to pay to read online.
1: So basically the business model did, just didn't work is what you're saying. It wasn't a political
0: issue. At all. Um, I don't think I don't think it's a political issue at all. If anything, the current government favors Apple Daily. If I, if I may, um, this might sound like an accus- accusation, but it's just my opinion. So, I think it's just a business model, and I think uh, newspapers around the world uh, are facing the same issue.
1: So, I'm gonna save my hardest question for the last um, so and because this it, it, I'm asking you know for your for, for your prediction but you know as we know, more countries have been ending their diplomatic recognition of Taiwan over time due to you know the basically Chinese pressure to do so with economic incentives attached to that. Um, what is the eventual resolution? Of what people call the Taiwan question. Uh, casting your mind five or ten years from now, what? How will this eventually stabilize?
0: Right. I think. Well, first of all, um, first and foremost is for us to avoid a 2027 uh, scenario. Right. Many people are, are saying uh, the PLA will have the capability and the willingness. Uh, to invade Taiwan in 2027. So for the for for next five years, we would have to avoid that happening. So going forward, I think for those of us who really believe in uh, human rights, democracy, and lab- liberty, I think uh, democratizing China is something that not just uh, fell on Taiwan's laps, but for the rest of the world that we have to do. Uh, we have to ensure um, the Chinese people living in mainland China has the human rights that they all deserve and be endowed by the creator. And if we can have a democratic China, I think the cross-strait problem can be better solved, I think, through peaceful and democratic means. In the meantime, um, Taiwan uh, has to avoid um, being the provocateur in cross relations, which taiwan has done a great job to maintain status quo. so i think uh, through this situation uh, taiwan just have to remain calm and do what we have done for the past 70 years uh, work with our uh, allies like the united states or japan and keep a good relations with uh, mainland china you know, our businessmen start going there 30 years. Still, help develop China. Maybe uh, Taiwan can be a model, and Taiwan is the model of Chinese democracy. So we have to practice wisdom. Uh, I know nowadays a lot of people see wisdom as a weakness, but you know, practice wisdom, practice patience, and I think uh, we will eventually find a resolution for everybody uh, to. Uh, keep their current lifestyle, and even create a better life for our next generation.
1: Well, that's a very, very wonderful and optimistic forecast for the future. And I think for people who have said in the past that culturally, China cannot be democratic, um, really only need to look at Taiwan to see that that is absolutely
0: incorrect. I I believe this is a matter of education, is a matter of exposure. Um, It's not something within uh, the Chinese culture that's against democracy. Um, So uh, I would say people who believe that is absolutely false.
1: Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us some insight. Um, To this very, very important question, Taiwan being such a a critical place for all of us um, to understand and um, all of our politicians as well to understand and for our business people as well, because um, Taiwan is right now irreplaceable in the global supply chain. So thank you so much. Um, And for our listeners, you can find this and past podcasts on our website, econview.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. And also thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, our managing editor, Ying Zan, and our producer, Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric.
0: Thank you, Leric.